0: My defining moment was Christmas 1999. Uh, Now, to understand some of my story, they kind of have to go back to the beginning. I I grew up in a single-parent home. Uh, It was always just me and my mom growing up, and we were always very close. She was wanting to be a stay-at-home mom, and uh, she wanted to be around me, but she also wanted to have a successful business and be able to provide for our family, and so what she did is she created her own business where we would travel all over the country and teach people how to play piano, and so if you can imagine this, we have this big, you know, RV kind of motorhome thing, and we would pack a hundred like small Casio, like Toys R Us type pianos on the bottom of it. And we'd go all over the country and she would set up and for a couple hundred people, she would teach them how to play piano. And at the same time as we were doing this whole business thing, uh, she found time to be involved in all the things that I cared about as well. And so I remember she got me this little like wiffle ball bat and, uh, and she got me a little wiffle ball and so I'd go outside and just throw it up and. And hit it on my own. And I'll never forget the day I was, you know, I was pretty young. She came out and she came out in a big baseball jersey. And if you can imagine this, the eighties, like big, poofy, curly hair walked out with that and a fitted hat on top of it. And uh, she came out and she was going to pitch to me so that, you know, I could learn how to hit. Um, But by the time I got to middle school, um, she had been feeling uh, not well. She hadn't been feeling well. And, uh, you know, she had kind of chalked it up to you know, maybe you know, it was in the flu or she just wasn't, you know, she wasn't doing well. And I remember she dropped me off at school one day and I was there throughout the day. And, uh, and about midway through, right around lunchtime, I get a call that said, hey, uh, you're going to get picked up early from school. And I remember going down to the office, I had my <clears throat> big book bag on and uh, I saw her there and it looked like she had, she was pretty upset. And so we got in the car and we drove probably two blocks after that. And in the car, it was just silent. She hadn't said really anything and I didn't really talk much. And uh, we got to a red light and there was nobody around. And at that point, she just she just breaks down and she starts crying. And she said, Patrick, uh, I was just diagnosed with cancer today. And she kept talking from that moment uh, on, but I mean, you know this if you've ever had news like that. um, You don't really hear anything after the word cancer. Like there was nothing else that really popped up for me. Uh, I just remember an overwhelming amount of emotion uh, that flooded me all at the same time. Uh, as a kid growing up, you know, in a single parent home, I would have men say, "You know, what? you're the you're the man of the house. Like you need to, you know, you take care of your mom." In some ways, I feel like I was stone faced, kind of receiving everything that she was saying, and and feeling like I wanted to let it all out, but that I couldn't. And so, trying to be like whatever this man of the house thing is, I remember leaning over and giving her a hug, and uh, and when I gave her a hug for the first time uh, that I could ever remember feeling like I was lying to my mom, saying it's all going to be okay. And what happened over the next couple of days really feels like a whirlwind. Um, we, found, or we found out that day, and then two days later, uh, she was in surgery. And so, uh, so they, they did the surgery. I stayed at a friend's house, uh, and the surgery went really, really great. Everything was successful with the surgery, but there was a long recovery period that was coming up next. Because she had been so successful in her business, we lived in a large home, you know, we, we had a lot of things. I had, you know, the basketball goal that I always wanted. I had all, I mean, I had everything that I could have ever wanted. And within about a six-month period, uh, because of some of the bills that we had, we lost really everything that we had. And we got to the place where we found out that we were gonna lose our home. At the time where we didn't know what we were gonna do, uh, we didn't have family around, it was just me and her. <clears throat> Somebody from our church reached out and they said, "Hey, we've got this really small apartment, uh, and uh, if you guys want to live in it for the next, you know, six months or nine months until you get back on your feet, you certainly can do that." We went over to this apartment and uh, we unloaded everything. My mom was still really weak through this recovery process and still not feeling, you know, uh, up to speed. And we got everything in the apartment, and uh, and then for the next several months after that, I think we just kind of we were just kind of living. It felt like one big blur. Our lives were extraordinarily different. My mom was still recovering and struggling through, like, how to navigate that. Uh, She wasn't working at the time, and, uh, you know, we had been living in some ways off of our savings during this point. Uh, I'd go to school and then come back, and when I came back, the rest of my evening was uh, in some ways trying to take care of, trying to take care of her and, and do that. So towards the end of this year, we were coming up on Christmas time, and growing up, Christmas was always a really big deal at our house. My mom would... Uh, She would decorate the whole house. I mean, she would have the most amazing trees. She'd be up on a ladder, you know, nailing lights in and, you know, doing the whole thing. And it was always a big deal for us. But coming up on this Christmas, I mean, obviously, we were gonna experience something that was very different. So early December, we were at our house, and it was around dinner time that night and there's a knock at the door, and as soon as I opened the door, uh, there were these five women that were standing there, and they just started like screaming and Merry Christmas and all of that sort of thing. They had on Santa hats and the ugliest Christmas sweaters that I think you could ever imagine, and uh, they were all carrying these presents and lights and decorations, and in that moment, it hit me. They were, they were here to decorate our house. They were here to, to give us gifts. They were here to make Christmas happen. Uh, in some ways, for us, after we open the door and we see these women standing there, turning around and seeing my mom behind me. And what she was feeling in that moment was just this overwhelming joy and thankfulness. And it was something that I hadn't seen in her in a very long time. And it was something that I had been praying for and that I had been hoping for and hoping that God would allow us to experience, you know, during Christmas that year. But the crazy thing, it wasn't that it happened in this miraculous way. It wasn't happening in the ways that I expected. That joy that was happening in that moment was made possible because of these five women in my mom's small group who showed up on our behalf to give us something that we could have never given ourselves. I'll never forget opening the door and seeing Rose and seeing Michelle and seeing Karen all standing there. And I don't think they had any idea just how much they were giving us, but It was in that moment that we felt so extraordinarily loved and reminded that we weren't alone and that God was with us. And ultimately, they gave us a gift that we could have never given ourselves.
1: I watched that video um, last week and... um... I don't know if you're like me, but I'm watching it and I'm kind of going, okay, defining moments. I'm going, oh, the, the defining moment is when his mom was diagnosed with cancer. Like, that's the defining moment. And it wasn't the defining moment. And then he goes on. It's like, oh, I know the defining moment is, is when they lost everything and they had to move from this big house into this tiny little apartment. That's the defining of the moment, and then the defining moment of his life. And it's not. And then I'm like sitting there going, well, where is he going with this? You know, it's like, what, what, what could be the defining moment if it's not if it's not them? And then he gets to the defining moment of his life is not the bad that's happening in his life. It's not the the terrible things that he had experienced. It's actually a moment where people who love Jesus were doing what Jesus says is the best way to show other people who he is. That's his defining moment. They were loving Patrick and his mom like they would want to be loved. They were able to put themselves in in his shoes, in their shoes, and thoughtfully and meaningfully provide a moment of respite for a single mom and a young boy who had lost everything and didn't know what tomorrow was bringing. And I'm just telling you, when someone loves like that, selflessly, thoughtfully, the difference and impact that is made on those people that are loved like that can last a lifetime to the point where you and I can actually become the defining moments of people's lives by loving like that. And in fact, that is what God has called you and I to be. That is what God has called you and I to do, and that is what we are going to dig into today. So pray with me before we jump into the rest of the day. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for Patrick's story and the way in which you impacted him through those five women so much so that in his 30s, he still sees that as one of the defining moments of his life. God, you have a specific message for each and every one of us, and I just pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to hearing your voice, that we may become more like you through what we talk about today as we open up your word in your holy name, amen. So have you ever met someone that was turned off to God or turned off to church, um, not because of God and not even the story of Jesus, but because of people who claim to be followers of Jesus? You ever met anybody that they were turned off to God and turned off to church because of that? And you might be sitting there going, yeah, well, that's me. I was turned off to church um, and to God because of somebody in in my past that claimed to be a follower of Christ. And I know I've talked to Christians that, like, made me not want to be a Christian anymore. I'm like, man, I'm giving this up if they're one, you know, just because of my interaction with them. remember back in the 90s, late 90s, um, I was coaching at uh, coaching golf at Oakland University. I'd played there for four years, five years, and then I coached for four more after that. And, um, and uh, one of the players that came through our, our program, name was Nick. We'd become buddies. He played for us for one year, and we were out playing golf. He got into the golf industry, and we were out playing golf during one of those years. And um, our relationship and our friendship had gotten to the point where spiritual things started to come up. And so I'm just like, hey, Nick, What's, what do you think about the whole spiritual side of your life? Well, how are you doing spiritually? Where are you at? And he's like, he's like, oh, he's like, man, I, I'm not into any of that stuff, man. He's, he gave me this idea of of his, his world view. And he just said, you know, I just believe that if, if I'm a good person and, and I do good things, you know, then hopefully I make it to heaven. And, and he told me about all the, the bad people I knew that were way worse than him, that they're going to hell, but he's not because he's, like, better than most people. And just gave me his world philosophy. A lot of people have that philosophy in life. And so I, I just kind of said, well, Have you ever thought about Christianity and about Jesus specifically? And he goes on to just for 20 minutes tells me. I'm not into that, and here's why, and all he did was tell me story after story of people in his life, family and friends who had judged him, criticized him, told him that he was going to hell, argued with him, were hypocritical, were abusers, and he just said, so I don't have anything to do with that, and I just, I responded, and I'm like, well, just have you ever thought about the reality that as human beings, including myself, I was a pastor at the time, and I was assistant golf coach for Oakland University, I'm like, we're, we're all hypocrites, even the Christian people. People were all hypocrites and, and that that doesn't mean that, that, that God is wrong or that Jesus is wrong or the church is wrong. And he just says, he's like, I don't, I don't care. He wanted nothing to do with the conversation. It was a non-starter. Like our conversation was done um, with that. Now, we still talked about spiritual things, but, but not that necessarily over the next two years as we just continued on in our relationship. And I hope, I hope that over the next two years that I was able to show him that maybe not all Christians were like the ones he had impacted or or had been impacted by in the past, and that maybe Jesus and God and the church isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I just got to tell you, after two years, we've lost touch. I've never talked to him since. But he's not the only one that feels that way about Christians, people who follow Jesus. If you read about um, Gandhi much, he was, uh, he was a civil rights activist in India in the early and mid-1900s and, and just known as a peacekeeping guy. He's very very, very elevated in worldview of, of people in history um, to look up to. And, and Gandhi, uh, uh, he actually said a now uh, famous quote, Because he was looking into Christianity and looking into Jesus and and, and researching world religions to see what what he was going to be and what he was going to follow. And he had an interaction with a church that basically wouldn't let him in the doors, a Christian church, wouldn't let him in the doors because he was the wrong caste. And I don't know about, if you know about the caste system in India, but the, there's a caste system where they kind of put people in their categories, and he was too low of a caste to get into that particular church, so they turned him away and said, you're not welcome here. And so Gandhi, in his search for God, actually gets to the point where he, he rejects Christianity, and this is his quote. He said, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And you will see that that is why Gandhi rejected Jesus. It wasn't because of Jesus or God or the story or the church. It was people. And I would say for those of us in the room that have been disconnected from God, if we were to kind of be honest about it, your disconnect is less about God and less about, about Jesus than it is about about observing or experiencing someone who claims to follow Jesus that you had an interaction with that you just said, if that's who Jesus is, if that's what Christianity is like, I want nothing to do with it. Um, for some people, Christianity, it's synonymous with evangelical, uh, Democrat, Republican, hypocrite, anti-gay, judgmental, narrow-minded, overly simplistic. Um, uh, some of you, it's, it's been that there's been televangelists or, or pastors that has made the church all about money. In fact, I don't know if you read the article about two weeks ago, there was a pastor that uh, this, that's got a church and then a, a television broadcast, and he said that God had told him that he needed a new $57 million jet, his fourth jet. God told him that he needed his fourth jet and that people needed to give it to him because he needed to go and teach people about Jesus around the world more, and he needed four jets to do it. And I'm telling you, I, I just got to tell you, in, in response to that, um, I've been hearing from God lately. <laughs> um, and he's been telling me some things that I need to tell you. One of them is, I think, I think we need a snow cone machine right back there for the summer. Um, but no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. I really want to talk specifically to those of us that are in the room that follow Jesus you've made a commitment to follow Jesus, you've invited him into your life, he's forgiven you, and you are now a follower of Christ, you're a disciple of Jesus. I want to talk to you now, if you're not back, because I know some of you in the room are not followers of Jesus yet, um, you are off the hook today, okay? You can just listen in, you can just go, huh, I wonder what this is all about, because it's not about you, and this is what's interesting about today. I want you to listen in to hearing what Christianity is supposed to be all about, the way that God intended it to be, and the way that Jesus taught us to live, if we're going to be followers of Christ. And so this is what I want to start with for those of us that are followers of Jesus in the room. um, I think it's important for us to recognize and honestly acknowledge this truth. Though Christianity is known for preaching love and grace, oftentimes we have not been characterized as loving and gracious people. Though Christianity is known for preaching love and grace, oftentimes we have not been characterized as loving and gracious people. And because of that, we have actually turned people away from God and turned people away from the church. And I will tell you, there are times in my life where I have been unloving. Even as a pastor, It once every five years or so, I'm unloving. I'm just kidding. No, there's times in my life where I'm, just, I'm not loving towards people. There's times in my life where I, 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 I argue. I've tried to argue with people that disagree with me or disagree with the Bible or disagree about God. I've tried to argue them, argue with them about it. And, it, and I know I have turned people off to the church. I have turned people off to, to God maybe even, you know, which just makes me so ashamed and just bummed. But I know I've done that. Why? Because I have been unloving. And I've been uncaring, and I've been argumentative, and if you think about it, when you hear stories of people that have walked away from the church and and walked away from God, and I've talked to a lot of them, I'm talking hundreds in my lifetime, when you hear stories about them, what tends to be the focal point of why they walked away? It's typically a who, isn't it? And that who is not typically God or Jesus. Typically, people say, you know, I used to go to church and then, or I knew a couple of Christians and this happened. It was a who. It was someone who turned them off to God. It was someone who turned them off to church. It was a who. And so here's one of the questions we want to talk about. How do you make sure that the who isn't you? How do you make sure that the who that's turning people off to church isn't you? And the answer is really simple. It's one word. It's four letters. In fact, I thought we'd play hangman today. I'm just kidding. We're not going to play hangman. It's making sure you're awake. Um, You know, it's like my daughter last service. And she's like, well, Dad, I might fall asleep. And I'm like, girl, you better not be falling asleep while I'm talking. You know, it's like kind of one of those deals where it's like, don't be falling asleep. But it's one of those deals where I've heard it said many times in my life. I don't know who said it to me the first time, but I know I've said it hundreds of times since. It's been said this, you don't argue people into the kingdom of God. You love them in. Now just let that sink in for a minute. You don't argue people into the kingdom of God. You love them in. And believe me, I don't mind a good argument. I like to argue. I'm like 52% full-blooded Italian. Arguments are like cool, right? They're good. Let's have a good one and then like go, go have a beer, right? Let's go hang out. Um, you know, it's one of those deals where I don't mind a good argument. I've tried to argue with people into the kingdom and guess what I found, it doesn't work. There's not been one time in my life that I've argued with somebody to the point where they're like, okay, I'm in, let's pray right now. Not one time, but I've lost count of the times where in a moment of compassion, in a moment of being loved, at just the right time and just the right way, I've seen people fall to their knees and accept Jesus Christ. You don't argue people into the kingdom of God. You, you actually love them and you want to introduce people to Jesus. You love them first. If we want this church to be so darn attractive that we can't handle all the people that are coming and we run out of chairs, it's like let's create an environment that's just, that's just love oriented where people come here and they are loved exactly like they need to be loved because they're involved with a group of people that are loving people. In fact, love is so attractive and so powerful that Jesus said if your life is characterized by being loving, you actually will fulfill by being that way every part of the law of God. Everything that's required of you by God, if you, if your life is characterized by being a loving person, you will fulfill all of it. And, uh, and he, he says that in Matthew 22. He's teaching um, one day, and there's a group of religious people who were all bent up about rules. They had actually come up with 613 rules that if you followed, God would accept you and you would be better than everybody else and you would work your way to God, um, they ask him this question in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-six: teacher, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? They're like, hey, we're all about the law, we're all about the rules, give us the top one. And Jesus goes, okay, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You find that in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses said that. But then Jesus, kind of in the next breath, adds a second one to it. He says, here's the top one. Then he gives a second one. And he says in 39, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so let's just hit the pause button on that one and ask a question. So you're saying the second is equally important, meaning the second one is kind of just like the first. The second is as powerful as the first. The second and the first are really almost like the same commandment. Is that what you're saying, Jesus? He continues in verse 40. The entire law and all the demands of the prophet are based on these two commandments. They equally bear the weight of all the laws, all 613 laws that the religious people had made up to earn their way to God, to make themselves acceptable to God. Jesus obliterates all 613, boils them down to two. Could Jesus really be saying that loving others is as important as loving him. Certainly, that's not what he's saying. He's not, hes he, like loving God has to be more important, right? It's got to be loving God and then loving others. I mean, all right, maybe it's a fingernail. Okay, I got really big fingernails. Okay, maybe it's a fingernail less, but it's like it's got to be loving God and, and, and then it's loving others. Is Jesus saying that they're, they're equal? They're as important as each other? Three chapters later. In Matthew 25, Jesus begins to speak about the future when you and I will stand before him as he judges our lives on earth, okay? And that day, you and I are going to need like two or three extra pairs of underwear because I think it's going to be scary, okay? It's going to be one of those deals. But just so you know, Scripture is unbelievably clear that, that there will be a day that we stand before God and we have to give an account for what we did with our life here. Because what we do in our life here is directly tied to what happens after this life. And so Jesus actually gives us a glimpse into that future day. He gives us a glimpse of the future. In Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man, which is how Jesus um, uh, talked about himself, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. How cool is that to think about? Since the creation of the world, a kingdom prepared for you, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink, I was a stranger, and you invited me in, I needed clothes, and you clothed me, I was sick, and you looked after me, I was in prison, and you came to visit me, and, and they won't understand him, is what the story says, it's, they won't understand what he is saying, so he goes on, and then the righteous, they answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And what are they saying? We never saw you. I mean, those people weren't you that we helped. I mean, if it would have been you, we would have served you, man. We would have rolled out the red carpet if it would have been you. But but, we didn't see you. And then Jesus reveals how important this is to him and backs up what he says in chapter 22. He says in verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Meaning this, if you love others like you love yourself, if you sacrificially love people around you, if you serve and give to those in need, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the lonely, the isolated of this world, If you love them, it's as if you were loving God himself. I'll just tell you, one of God's desires for your heart and mind is that you and I fall so much in love with God and in love with loving other people that it works its way so deep into our bones that it becomes a natural outpouring of the lives that we live on this planet. That's his goal. You want to know is that you live a life where you see needs and you meet needs. You see needs and you meet needs. Because when you do that, little boys with single moms that have cancer and can't provide Christmas for their son have moments where they're loved with God's love in such a way that it literally reverberates for the rest of their lives. And reveals what? How God loves us. What were those women doing? What were those five women doing? They were loving Patrick and his mom like they would want to be loved. They were able to put themselves in their shoes and go, if I were a single mom, and I had a little boy, and I had cancer, and I didn't have anything left to my name, and I was living for free in somebody's apartment, and I couldn't provide uh, anything for Christmas, what would I want someone to do for me? How would I want to be loved? And they did that. And it was so impactful. Patrick looks back as a 30-something-year-old and goes, that was the defining moment in the midst of all this bad stuff. That's the defining moment. Now, I wish that Jesus would have stopped right there in what he was explaining about, about love and the sheep and the goats. I wish he would have just stopped right there, but he didn't stop right there. And, and it's like I, I wish I would feel okay with just teaching the first half of this story, but I can't because it's the it's first half of a whole. Jesus goes on and he starts telling the other side of, of this, this idea and he says, then he will say to those on his left, remember he talked to the, to the sheep, and then he says to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And Jesus says back, he says, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And let me just tell you the struggle with these verses, because it's like, it, it's it's um it's this struggle with who will experience the wrath of God, right? It's like we think, the people that will experience the wrath of God, it's, it's the drug dealers, it's the murderers, it's the pornographers, it's the thieves, it's the bad people, right? Well, here's the difficulty of this verse. It's also the good guys who neglect the poor. It's The people that see a need and don't meet it. It's the people that are so focused on themselves that they don't even see needs of people around them anymore. And they miss the opportunity to love on people right in front of them that desperately need it. People in need are so close to the heart of God that if you miss them, if you overlook them, if you neglect them, it is as if you are neglecting God himself. Why, this is such a hard teaching. The Christian life, again, I'm talking to you Christians. The Christian life is about you and I receiving the greatest gift we've ever been given, and that is eternal life with Jesus in heaven. It's the forgiveness of your sins. It's the washing away of every bad decision you've ever made, and the hope that is filled into your chest directly from God's heart. That fuels you to live your life differently and for Jesus while you're on this planet. We've been given that. And then God says, I've given you that. Now go out and and show the world who I am. How? By loving them like I've loved you. So let me just give you a, a statement to us Christians. It's following Jesus isn't just about you this is where this is just hard. Following Jesus isn't just about you. In fact, it's more about the person that's in front of you, whoever that may be, And Jesus says it this way, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, um, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, you're my followers, if you have love for one another. Well, here you got to look at, if Jesus is saying, love like I love, how did Jesus love? He gave up his life for us. Do you realize that? He gave up everything for us. And when he walked the earth, he showed us what that looked like. He loved people, he touched and healed the sick, people that no one else would even touch. Jesus went right to him and grabbed him, touched him, put his hand on him, healed him. He treated women with equal status as men. He talked to them and they talked to him. He cared for children that nobody in society tended to see. He cared for children and elevated them. He, he looked after the poor and the widows, the needy, the broken, the spiritually destitute. And he says, if you're a follower of mine, you're to love like I loved. And I'll just tell you what impacted Patrick to this day as he looks back is love. Someone going out of their way at just the right time, doing just the right thing, And that spoke of God's love to him. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but how did those women know of her need? Did you guys catch it? How did they know? Small group. Get in a group, people. That's what that means. Get in a group, people. How did they know? They were in community with her. They knew her story. They knew her situation. And they knew just what she needed. They were being the church to Patrick and his mom. And I love that because that's what small groups are designed to do. You can come here and you can hide in this room for years if you want to. But when you get in relationships with people in small group relationships and they get to know who you are you get to know them, guess what, you can start meeting needs that you might not even knew they had. And so this is what I want to do. I want to get personal with our church for just a few minutes. I've always dreamed of leading and being a part of a church where the people in it can actually say and mean from the bottom of their hearts these next four words I'm about to say, and this is, this is hard to get to this place, but I dream we can get there. I know we can get there, and I think we've been there, and I think we're there in a lot of ways, but I've always wanted to lead a church and be a part of a church where the people in it can say and mean these four words, it's not about me. It's not about me. I've longed to be a part of a church where the people in it say, you know what, the church is not about me. The service is not about me church is not here to fulfill my needs. The church is actually here to meet the needs of people that aren't here, to meet the people that are in front of us. It's about reaching people that are far from God and telling them who he is through creating such an incredible environment that when they walk in they are so well loved from the parking lot on in that they just are immersed in who God is at that time. It's love. It's love that gets people into the kingdom of heaven. I've always longed to be a part of a church where people are willing to say it's not about me, and that's really hard to do because I just got to be honest with you about me. I'm selfish. And I struggle constantly with making my life about me. I I struggle constantly with wanting to get what I need and what I want from other people and from organizations and from things that I'm a part of. And it is about me so much of the time that I'm just like, I don't want to live that way. I want to be a part of a community that we're constantly going, it's not about me. And we do that in little ways around here. And I know this this might be something so small, you're like, really, that's what you're going to say? But a little way of saying it's not about me is we ask you, if you're a regular attender here and you're a follower of Jesus, we ask you to park where? In the back, we ask you to park as far away from the front doors of this building as you possibly can. You make the long sweaty walk in, why? So that we can leave the front parking spots, the best parking spots for people that don't know Jesus or are coming here to visit for the first time. It's a way of just saying, hey, this isn't about me and it's not about me getting the best parking spot and having the shortest hot sweaty walk as possible. And everyone else can just fend for themselves. It's going, I'm gonna put myself in the back. We also ask you to sit where? In the front. Why do we want you to sit in the front? Because people that are coming to church for the first time, they need an ejector button, right? Because it might get hot and hot and heavy in here. And they're like, i got to get out of here. And it's really hard to hit the eject button in the front rows. It's really the back row, which is where most of the people that need an ejector button sit. And so we want to leave those seats for visitors or people that don't know God. We want to leave them open. And so we say, hey, would you be willing to live? And it's not about me life on Sunday mornings and park in the back and sit in the front. I have people that have come well meaning loving people that love Jesus and they've come and talked to me and they just said hey you know we would love for you to change the way your services go and we would like a little bit more of of, of this and we need a little bit more of that. You need to change this. You need to do that. And, And it's like I totally understand where they're coming from. I've been there. And it's like it's so hard because it's like while I hear what they need and what they want, I also need, need to talk to them and just go, hey, we're a church where it's not about the people inside the church. It's about the people outside the church, and we're willing to do anything to reach them. And that means we give up what we like and the kind of services that we think we need. We give that up for the sake of somebody walking in for the first time to meet Jesus. And that's really difficult to, to, to get a whole community to, to just say it's not about me. This church thing is not about me. Yet throughout Jesus' teachings, what is he constantly telling us that life is found most fulfilling when we give our lives away? He says take up your cross and follow me. And a lot of people as Christians, we don't like that because what, is it? what does the cross represent? Death to self. And who wants to pick up dying to their self and follow Jesus? Who wants to make their life not about them when there's so many cool, fun things when you make your life about yourself? Yet Jesus says, hey, you want to live life like I intended? Give it away. You'll find life like you never believed. And so it's like that's where we have this trust relationship with God that, okay, if we give our lives away, God, if we give our lives away, we trust that you're going to give us more than what we need. You're going to give us everything we long for and need. So here's the question. What do we do? What do we do? How do we handle this? How do we make sure we're a sheep and not a goat? Well, here's what you do. You ask God to help you. You ask God to help you. I'm telling you, that's the only way you can do it in and of yourself. And I'm going to speak for me and I'm going to assume that it's with you too. In and of, of, of myself, with my own strength and my own power, I am incapable of putting others' needs before me. I can't do it consistently. I have flashes of brilliance when I do it that way. But consistently it's not possible. I need God's help on a regular basis. And I'm like the pastor leader guy, right? I'm the one saying, hey, follow me as I follow Christ on my good day. Okay, I'm a bad days, don't. I'm a good days, do. And so I'm like constantly going, Jesus, help me take care of the needs in front of me because I don't see them sometimes because I'm so full of seeing my own needs. So what do we do? We ask God this sentence. We ask him to open our eyes to the needs around us and love others like we would love to be loved. That's what we ask God to do. God, open my eyes to see the needs of other people and then help me love them like I want to be loved. And how we do that, I got three questions I want to ask you. And this is just kind of a way for you to kind of figure out how do you do that. Um, uh, But before we get into those questions, we're going to receive our offering. So, ushers, if you guys can come on down. Um, For those of you that call Kensington home, this moment is really cool. It is a not-about-me moment. This is a moment where we just say, hey, the finances and resources that God has given to me were given to me by him, and they are actually his and he has asked me to give a little bit back to him, and so this is where we do that. We say, God, even our finances are not about me, they're about you, and we give back. And for those of you that do that, thank you for doing that. For those of you that are guests here, I'm just telling you, just like I said this message, you know, it's, you're off the hook, you're off the hook in this moment. You don't have to give a thing um, unless you got like a $1,000 bill in your wallet. Give that, okay? Uh, do they even make those? Um, I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Like maybe it was a bad timing for a joke. My bad. Um, So here we go. So while we're doing that, uh, how do we live this out? Three quick questions. The first one is this, who is in front of you? Who is in front of you? One of the questions to ask God, God, open my eyes, help me love others like I want to be loved. Who's in front of me? Reveal to me who you've already put there that is in need. And chances are right this moment, if you're asking that question, there's a name that just popped into your head. And you know who it is. It's a, work, it's a co-worker. It's someone on your street. It's a friend. It's someone that you know is in need. It might be the homeless person that you've seen down the street. There's a name or a face that popped into your head because you're asking God who is in front of you. Um, and that would, be, that would be God saying, this is the person. I want you to love them. Go out of your way. Take on the inconvenience of love because love is inconvenient. And see who's already in front of you. The second question you ask is, well, then what are you going to do for them? See a need, meet a need. If you've got that person, what are you going to do for them? You don't have to put on your superhero shirt, you know, like that opening song was all about superheroes. You don't have to do that to see a need and meet a need. It can be as simple as going, what do I already have in my hand that I can give to somebody that might help them? And I'll just tell you a a couple of really quick stories. Um, About four weeks ago, we were doing a message where we were talking about serving, and um, the whole point was, is is God asking for what's already in your hand, and just give that to him, and he'll multiply it and use it for miraculous things. And I'm walking out of the church office in the morning um, about 7:45 to come here and um, as I'm walking out I happen to glance to the side before I push the door open and I can see that there's a a, a woman that has uh, taken up residence outside the door and she's um, kind of stirring and waking up here I saw her when I came in but she was dead asleep and now she's awake her name's Joyce she's a homeless person in our area I've known her for a number of years and I uh, have interacted with her a number of times and so I'm going to walk out the door and I'm like man, I'm doing a message on what's in your hand. I can't walk out of here and not do something, right? The whole message is on that. So I'm like, what's in my hand? Nothing, okay? I got nothing. Reach in my pocket, I have a dollar. And I'm like, gosh, that's horrible. It's a dollar. I'm like, well, it's at least a coffee, right? So I start walking around our office. What can? I, what's in my hand? What's in this office that I can give her that might help? I find a stack of t-shirts in one of our offices that I'm like, okay, that's helpful. I grab a t-shirt. I go to our little mini fridge. We have a cold iced water in there, a water bottle, a brand new one. And so I grab that and I walk outside and I'm like, hey Joyce, good morning. And I'm like, I got a few things for you. And I'm like, here's a dollar and I've got some water and I've got a shirt. And she just looks at me and she just says, thank you so much. And, uh, and, I, and I say, have a good day because we've, we've got a relationship. I don't know if she remembers me, but I know her. Um, and, and I, I come on to church. But it can be that simple. What's in your hand that you can just give to somebody that's in need? I look at the way people have loved me, and I, a really quick story, but uh, back in the day, um, I, I lost my leg in an accident 20 years ago helping a lady change a tire. I spent four months in a wheelchair. During this time, we, we, were, we were living in an apartment that wasn't conducive to getting a wheelchair around, and we were looking for a home. Um, one of our good family friends, Chuck Carn. Big, huge, heavy set guy. I mean, he was massive. He was our realtor. And there's something he did that I literally have forgotten until today, and I might have told it one other time in my life. Every home we went to look at, I couldn't get into the home to see it. Because they were none of them were handicap accessible. He would put my wheelchair together. I mean, Melissa and I, Melissa couldn't get me in these homes. And they were all like all jacked up in steps and stuff. He would put me in my wheelchair. I, just, I still feel him wrap his, he'd bend down, wrap his arms around me and grab the wheels of the wheelchair, pick me up like this and walk me up the stairs and set me in the house so that I could see it. For 20 to 30 homes, Chuck Carn would lift me up and put me in this home. And the cynical side goes, oh, well, he just wants the sale, right? No, this is a family friend of ours. He never complained once. Always did it with joy. And I'm telling you, you want to feel loved, have somebody in one of your greatest times of need. Just love you. Just take care of a need you have. I still remember that. Gosh, I was, I was in tears this morning just thinking about it. I'm like, I can't believe he would do that and just did it. He didn't ask if I wanted him to. He said, you're seeing this house. I'm like, okay, how are you going to do this? And he's like, mm, you know, it's like, it was crazy. That's love. Who's in front of you? What are you going to do? And then finally, the last one, what family rhythm will you put in place to impress serving on the heart of your kids. And I'll just tell you, I love that my family serves at this church. I got a 14-year-old son right now. He's backstage. He's the assistant stage manager. And he's the guy that's telling the band to come out in a few minutes. And I love it because I like to tell, Travis, your whole job is to tell adults what to do. You can tell them where to go, buddy. And he's like, I know, right? Um, And he serves. He serves every other week doing that. And then my my 16-year-old son, he serves in K-Kids. My 11-year-old daughter serves in the nursery on and off whenever they have a need. Why? Because I just want my kids to know that if you're a follower of Jesus, what do you do? You give your life away missions trips. Two of my boys have been to Haiti. Um, We do uh, East Winter Garden, uh, Dillard Elementary School. Any chance we get to put serving in front of them in the name of Jesus, we do, because we want that to be a part of our family rhythm, because it starts when you're young. I want us to spend a little bit of time um, in prayer and then singing a song, so you can go ahead and send the band out, Tina. And I want to pray for us because I believe that this message today is so important to the heart of God that you and I need to really dwell on it and begin asking those questions. Who's in front of us and what are you going to do? How do I build this into the rhythm of my family? Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are a gracious God and that you forgive us for our sins and that you call us to live a life differently than we've lived in the past. God, I pray for us in this room that uh, maybe we are followers of yours, but we have stopped seeing the needs of people around us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes of our heart right now, that we might see needs and be willing to meet them. God, for those in the room that are not a follower of yours, but, but even maybe today hearing this message, they want to become one. Lord, I pray that you would just um, uh, open their eyes to who you are. And I'll just say if that's you in the room, all you need to do is invite Jesus in and he promises to come in and forgive and change your life around and change your eternal destiny. You can invite him in right now just between you and him. Lord, help us to be the kind of community that loves like you love. Help us to be the kind of community that doesn't turn people off to church and off to you, but actually draws people in because we're so darn loving that it's like a light in the darkness, a beacon in the, in the stormy waters of life that people can, can lean towards and go towards to find the love that all of us so desperately need, Lord. Help us to become that in your holy name. Amen. We're going to sing a song. And um, I w- uh, it's one of my favorite songs right now. Um, worship songs. It, it's it's so impactful to me every time we do it. But I want us to sing it from a little different perspective. Um, it's about God's love and how He recklessly loves us. And in light of today, I want you to hear that song a little differently. Um, maybe through the lens of, of what it, would it look like if Jesus and in, in this song is about how God loves us. What would it look like for me to love others like this song says Jesus loves.